Lovely. Thanks, Gareth. Um, let me add my welcome to Gareth. My name's Chris Evans. Uh, if you're new, my name is still Chris Evans. If you're not new, um, we're gonna, we've got to the end of um, Genesis, and uh, we're going to um, have a look at this final section now. Um, there's some big themes, big questions that um, the idea of providence is one of the words we'll, we'll have a, be thinking about um, that, that it, it throws up this morning. And I just want to say that, that that's there's not going to be time to, to answer all the questions, but if you, um, if you have any or things that you want to think through more, please do come and chat to me or, or one of the elders. Um, but it's, uh, there's precious truths in here for us as we see um, the Lord comforting um, his people as he works in the world. So let's pray and ask that uh, he would reassure us and comfort us now. Heavenly Father, we thank you for... Um, your word. We thank you for this book, Genesis, for um, the, the many years we've been working our way slowly through it, bit by bit. And um, we thank you for all that you've taught us about your purposes in this world, your promises, for all that you've taught us about the way uh, you are faithful, the way you bless. Um, please, Father, as we uh, come to the end of our sermon series now. May that not be the end of our, our heart's reflection on these topics, not be the end of your work, um, pressing your truth more deeply into us. Um, we pray that you would continue to bless us um, this morning as we hear um, from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, I saw a video earlier this week, um, My one of my little bits of doom scrolling. Um, uh, if you live far enough north at the moment, um, you're just sort of entering the season that they call a polar night. And we know that that's the kind of um, the, the time when if you live far enough north, the sun goes down and basically it won't come up again for about three or four months. Um, and uh, this, this little video was someone living in this very idyllic little kind of I don't know, Norwegian Scandi cottage by a lake. And they, it was beautiful. The cinematography of this sun going down with the stars and this kind of, ooh, kind of purpley, dusky twilight. Um, and it, and the, the narration was this lady saying, this is my favorite time of year. I, I don't know about you. I cannot get my head around that. Favorite time of year. I mean, there's a, a picture here. This looks quite nice. I, I'm sure that that's not actually quite there yet, is it? There's, there's definitely still too much light. Um, I mean, it looks very idyllic, but in, once, once the, the skies are completely dark and all you've got are those kind of slightly orangey lights to, to look at, um, four months of it, I mean, favorite time of year. It might be novel for a few days of darkness, mightn't it? But who wants to be plunged into darkness for that long? And we would never say that sort of being plunged into darkness, plunged into a season like that, we would never say that that is our, our favorite thing for, for other dark seasons of life, would we? Um, someone who knew a thing or two about this was an English poet, William Cooper. Um, he wrote a number of hymns. We sing a number of them. Um, he was alive in the 18, 18th century. One of the most famous poets um, in his day. And after years of success, um, he was plagued with mental breakdown after breakdown, deep depression. And uh, there was a, a, a kind of, he went into more lucid moments, and, and he wrote this famous hymn called God 
moves in a mysterious way. And there's a couple of lines that he, that he wrote, which are just brilliant. Uh, he is in his own season of, of, of a polar night, if you like, and he says this, judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, there hides a smiling face. For Cooper, uh, God's providence, God's work in the world felt like a, a frown. And sadly, during one of these, uh, these dark periods, he tried to take his own life. And whilst he didn't succeed, the recovery was long and ultimately uh, unsuccessful. And he, he died about four months later. Um, he was good friends with John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace, who cared for him wonderfully well. They were, they were very good friends. Uh, but deep grief when Cooper died. This was a, a kind of spiritual polar night, uh, if ever there was one. And it raises those questions. Uh, what do we cling to when the sun goes down on God's promises, on, on our sense of communion with him, and it doesn't feel like it's going to come up again? Maybe it feels longer than four months. Maybe it feels four, four years, four decades. Uh, and in a sense, that's where we've got to in Genesis today. The end of Genesis is so different to the beginning. The beginning, Genesis 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It be- it's full of beginnings, full of life. Uh, what have we just had read? Endings. Two deaths, a funeral. Genesis begins in the freedom of Eden. Where does it end? Well, there are, Israel are about to be slaves in Egypt. God's people are entering a kind of polar night of their own. And it brings up questions, doesn't it? We think about the book of a whole. Does the God who who made the universe back in Genesis 1, does he really rule over every last bit of it? Or when we get to Genesis 50, is, is it all kind of going to unravel? Is it some sort of Frankenstein's monster that's just going to go out of control? And these aren't just questions for, for them, are they? They're, we all go through seasons like this. Um, perhaps some of you are in them at the moment. And that is why Genesis 50, although it maybe feels a bit of an odd ending to the book, it is actually genius. Because actually we don't need so much help, do we, for when the sun comes back, for when all the promises come good. That is a moment of great joy. What we need help particularly in is when we're left hanging in the air, when those answers are, are left with a, a dot, 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 the promises, we're waiting and waiting and still waiting. We, we need a foothold in the dark until the lights come back on. And Genesis 50 points us uh, to, to one foothold in particular. There's, there's lots of them over scripture, but one foothold in particular, which is God's providence. God's providence is the, the, the word theologians give to, to how he is able to achieve and keep everything he's promised because he is the almighty Lord. Uh, one author defined it like this. God, our heavenly father, working in and through all things by his wisdom for the power and good of his people and also the glory of his name. See, God's providence and his promises go hand in hand. He's made his promises, and how does he achieve it? Because of his providence. And in Genesis 50, we see two 
ways that that is a light in the dark. So the first one, our first point, providence, turns the grave to a place of hope. Two deaths in Genesis, end of 49 and 50, Jacob and Joseph. They start and they finish our passage. Now alone, this would be a pretty discouraging end to the book. But the details around the death, funeral, the burials, turn these gravesides into signposts of God's providence. Signposts that God will one day come good on all he's promised, even if that wait is a long one. God's people are to look at these deaths, look at these graves, and not see despair, but see hope. So let's, we're going to draw out four signposts that we see here. At the first signpost of hope is hope in hope of rest in the promised land um, the ending of Genesis is a little bit like the end of Lord of the Rings particularly if you've seen the extended edition again and again you think it's over no it, it's not um, Jacob he's ready to die no another 17 years some blessings but we finally get there and then we get verse 29 with a very particular request then he gave these instructions I'm about to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave in the field of Ephron the Hittite, the cave in the field of Machpelah near Mamre in Canaan, which Abram brought along with the field as a burial place from Ephron the Hittite. In verse 33, when Jacob had finished giving instructions to his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed, breathed his last, and was gathered to his people. So it's kind of a strange request, isn't it? Firstly, where he wants to be buried. He wants to be buried in the land of promise. You see, he doesn't want to be buried in Egypt, but this tiny plot of land, a cave in a field in Canaan that Abraham bought way back in Genesis chapter 23. So, he mentions it three times. He's so specific. Make sure you get this right. Verse 30, it was bought from Ephron the Hittite. Yep, that's the one. Verse 32, remember, we bought it from the Hittites. And then in chapter 50, verse 12, it's the one that we bought from the Hittites, just if you're in any doubt. At this point, God's people are waiting to receive that promised land of Canaan. And we're not going to get there till Joshua. We were looking at Joshua a few months back. But Jacob is so sure of that promise that he's willing to have himself buried there in expectant hope. Hope of future rest in the promised land. So part of the request is where he is to be buried, but also look with who. It's with people of promise. Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Rebecca, Leah. And how does he describe his death? Verse 29, being gathered to my people. For Jacob, death in the Lord is not simply burial, but it's going to be with God's people who have died trusting in him before. Going to be in God's promised place. Jacob wants his death, his grave, to be a signpost to every Israelite to know, just as their father Jacob, or Israel, just as Israel rests in the promised land now, one day... Because of the God of their fathers, all of Israel will come out of Egypt and rest in the promised land too. Providence turns the grave into a place of hope. Hope, firstly, of rest in the promised land. Uh, But this hope points to a a second one that we kind of need to the first one, don't we? 
hope of the exodus to come. So what happens to Jacob is actually the Lord giving his people a picture of what was to come so they could be ready for it. Um, When Sophie and I got married, we had a couple of flower girls and um, we sent them some music beforehand, the music that we were going to, well, that Sophie was going to walk down the aisle to. And um, they had a little practice um, before we got to the rehearsal on the day. And it was lovely. Got, um, got a little couple of videos um, of them uh, either walking very quickly or very slowly down the aisle of some empty village church that was sort of ripe for a, ripe for a rehearsal with a little bit of commentary from the parents. Oops, slower. Nope, faster. Stop there. Um, make sure you look up. Now, it wasn't the real thing, but it helped them to wait and be ready for it. And it, and it was almost the real thing. And God does a similar thing here. Jacob's death, his funeral procession, and his burial, they're not the real exodus. They're not the rescue that we're going to see in the next book of the Bible. But they are a picture of it. Uh, Just cast your mind, um, do these events sound familiar? I could almost be describing this passage or the story we're going to get in a few chapters' time. God's representative asks Pharaoh for permission to go to the land of Canaan. Oh, that's Joseph, isn't it? But it could also be Moses. Or a great number of people leave Egypt for Canaan. Well, that's this funeral procession, isn't it? But it could also be the Exodus. Throughout this passage, the words go up, went up, are repeated again and again. If you read through the first 15 chapters of Exodus, that is all over the place. Even the route that they take is the same that the Israelites would one day follow. What is happening to Jacob's body is almost an enacted, a a dramatized prophecy of what would happen to all Israel. The hope for Israel, as they wait, as the sun goes down, is that what happens to Jacob now will happen to them then. Not just physically either, but spiritually too. Physically freed, spiritually redeemed, worshipping the Lord in joy and freedom from sin. And that is where Jacob is a picture of Jesus for us. When we feel like the sun has gone down on God's purposes, we have hope that what happened to Jesus will happen to us. That Jesus' exodus will be our exodus too. Hebrews 6, verse 19 to 20, talks about Jesus going ahead of us through death to resurrection life. It says this, We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner, Jesus, has entered on our behalf. Jesus is our forerunner. He's gone there first. And he is our anchor. We are attached to him. And we go where he goes if we are united by faith. We sang earlier, Christ our hope in life and death. If you are feeling in a place of spiritual polar night where the sun has gone down, that is a precious hope, isn't it? We go where Jesus goes. And where is Jesus? He is with the Father. We um, sometimes sing this uh, hymn, Christ the sure and steady anchor, And it pictures this beautifully. Christ the sure and steady anchor in the fury of the storm, when the winds of doubt blow through me and my sails have all been torn. 
in the suffering, in the sorrow, when my sinking hopes are few, I will hold fast to the anchor of the Lord Jesus. It shall never be removed. We go where he goes. Hope of the Exodus to come. But Jacob's grave doesn't just point to hope for, for Israel, for God's people, but also hope for the nations. Because there's one way in which this Exodus story is not like the one we would read if we turn the pages. Moses asks Pharaoh to let God's people go. And what does he say? Well, it's a resounding no. But here, when Joseph asks for them to go into Canaan, admittedly, they're going to come back. It's not quite the same question, but it's a very similar event. He says, yes. And it's not just, yeah, you guys can go. It is a state funeral-sized yes. Everything is big about what happens. In fact, this is, feels like the major event in the chapter. It is huge in size. Did you see verse 7? Joseph went up to bury his father. Listen to the word all. All Pharaoh's officials accompanied him. The dignitaries of his courtland, all the dignitaries of Egypt, besides all the members of Joseph's household and his brothers and those belonging to his father's household, only their children and their flocks and herds were left in Goshen. Chariots and a horseman also went up with them. As if we haven't got the point, it says, it was a very large company. It was huge in size, but also it was huge in grief. Carries on. They lamented loudly and bitterly. And there, Joseph observed a seven-day period of mourning for his father. That's seven days, by the way, after the, the 40 days that they've had in verse 3 and the 70 days at the end of verse 3. So you know, this, is, this is pretty big. Even those who hadn't gone on the trip, looked on and had something to say. Verse 11, when the Canaanites who lived there, I mean, what were they thinking? This massive group of people turn up for a funeral in a tiny cave in a, in a little field. They saw the mourning and they said, the Egyptians are holding a solemn ceremony of mourning. Imagine it being all over the Canaanite um, newspapers. This wasn't just a, a kind of small family affair. It touched Everyone, it touched nations. The only thing I can think to compare it to is the impact of the Queen's death. Uh, not only was the funeral huge in size and ceremony, it was huge in grief, wasn't it? And the grieving was spread out in so many different ways, affecting us often over weeks and months. I remember walking past an estate agent in Winchester, and the, the windows were all covered up. You couldn't, you couldn't look at a property to buy um, because... All of the properties were covered up with a black uh, kind of card with a silhouette of the queen and the years of her life. The nations acknowledged her. In some sense, the whole world acknowledged her at her death. And we have something similar happening with Jacob. And Israel, what are they about to enter? They're about to enter a time when they will feel downtrodden. Uh, they, this isn't going to be a surprise. God promised this back to Abraham in Genesis 15. They are going to go through 400 years of slavery in Egypt when a new pharaoh who does not know the Lord, who's going to say no, he will not acknowledge God's ruler as important or worthy. That is what is to come. 
And we can feel similar to that, can't we? Can be disheartened by, by world leaders or, or the dishonor done to Christ, people who do not recognize the worthiness of God's king. And we should be rightly pained by that. But Jacob's grave shows a different picture. It is a picture of hope for the nations. Hope that was promised to Abraham that he would be a blessing to the nations. It's a hope that gets picked up in Isaiah's prophecy. Um, Weirdly, in this section of Isaiah, which is all about uh, how the nations are, are to be cursed for drawing God's people away, in chapter 19, verse 21 and 22, he talks of Egypt turning to the Lord. Listen to this. So the Lord will make himself known to the Egyptians, and in that day, they will acknowledge the Lord. That's a picture of future hope that, that some nations will be drawn to him. Hope that one day, everyone will acknowledge God's king. And that's a hope that we ultimately see in the Lord Jesus. Philippians 2 Therefore God exalted him to the highest place, that is the Lord Jesus, and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. One day there will be a time when all will rightly acknowledge God's leader. Some will bow the knee willingly, and others because they are compelled to. Last week, Jacob's blessing assured us that leaders who do not acknowledge the Lord will not be left in power forever. This week, Jacob's funeral shows us in that darkness of a world that feels it will never acknowledge God's ruler, God's king, one day that will all change. The grave is being turned into a place of hope. There's one more piece of hope that we see and skipping on to Joseph's death at the end of the chapter let me read verse 24 and 25 then Joseph said to his brothers I am about to die but God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land to the land he promised on oath to Abraham Isaac and Jacob and Joseph made the Israelites swear an oath and said God will surely come to your aid and then You must carry my bones up from this place. The final hope at the side of the grave is that God will visit again. Unlike Jacob, Joseph is quite happy for his bones, his body to stay in Egypt, at least for now, because he trusts that God's future visit and rescue means then he will go and be with the people of promise in the land of promise. As God's people endure this spiritual and physical polar night, a time of of darkness and slavery, maybe they'll feel that, that God will never come. Is God really going to visit us? The work is backbreaking. The oppression is overwhelming. But Joseph's bones are in their midst. And what did they do? They made an oath to Joseph that his bones wouldn't be there forever. And their oath was based on an oath that God made, that he would surely come to their aid. They may feel alone, but in a sense, Joseph is still with them, speaking comfort and promise from beyond the grave. Isn't that what Jesus does too? 
Andrew Peterson, who is a, a, a favorite singer-songwriter and author of mine, wrote a song called The Dark Before the Dawn, which picks up this idea of waiting for God to come. It says this, So I'm waiting for the king to come galloping out of the clouds while the angel armies sing. He's going to gather his people in the shadow of his wings, and I'm going to raise my voice with the song of the redeemed because all this darkness is a small and passing thing. It's the storm before the calm. This is the pain before the balm. This is the cold before the warm. These are the tears before the song. This is the dark before the dawn. We may not be waiting in Egypt, but for us too, uh, the darkness often doesn't feel a small and passing thing. It feels like a storm, like pain, like cold, like tears. But it is a dark before the dawn. To rephrase Joseph's words, Jesus will surely visit us. And when he comes, we will be brought home too. And we don't have Jesus' bones in our midst because his tomb was empty. His bones, his body is already with the Father. But we have the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ, the words of Christ, and the body of his people to keep speaking those words to us. What was one of the things that Jesus told his disciples before he left? John 14, verse 18. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. So when the night feels particularly long, the grave is another reminder that God will come to our aid, that Jesus will visit us again. God's providence in this first section turns the graveside into a place of hope. Jacob and Joseph, they point us to his providence. And in a similar way, Jesus' graveside is also the sign of our great hope, isn't it? The tomb which declares our sins paid for, Satan conquered, death defeated. The promises might feel dim, but like a seed that gets buried underground, is not dead, neither are God's purposes or plans. But we want to recognize, don't we, that, that living in the kind of dark before the dawn is a hard and a dingy place to be. And even though we've been given these signposts, in, in, they're giving them then, we have signposts now, sometimes it's hard to, to see them. Sometimes he works in very unlikely ways. And that, that's our, our second point, our second uh, if you like, foothold in the dark of providence is that providence shows evil being turned for good. Well, once they get back from the funeral, what happens? Dad's gone. Brothers wonder, has Joseph been putting on an act the whole time? Verse 15, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs that we did to him? The guilt weighs heavy. Their consciences won't rest. And it's worth stopping and saying for a minute, isn't it, that sin does that to all of us. Even forgiven sin can leave marks that we still end up wrestling with. So out of fear, they hatch a plan. Verse 16, they send word to Joseph saying, your father left these instructions 
before he died. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now, please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. It's quite simple to the point, but Jacob sees through this what must be a forged note. He sees through the forgery and sees their fears. Amazingly, look at how he responds, verse 17. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. Now, all throughout this story, Joseph has wept at key moments. He weeps when he's reunited with his brothers. He weeps when he's reunited with his father. And these are tears of joy. But here he sees their fearful hearts and weeps because they haven't grasped how secure they are in his love. We've seen again and again throughout this series that Joseph is a picture of Jesus. And uh, here's one last one. This morning, please let this one sink in. If you feel like one of Joseph's brothers, there is great comfort here. If you are doubting that because our sin made Christ suffer, because we have guilt that weighs heavily on our consciences, that because, even though we, we trust that he died for us, we still feel maybe he's ashamed to be with us, angry. We feel scared of coming into his presence. Friends, know that Jesus sees our doubting and our fear, and everything we know tells us that his merciful heart longs for us to be assured of our forgiveness, even more than the assurance Joseph could give his brothers, because Jesus has won it all for us at the cross. Joseph's tears show that the brothers didn't understand how deep his love went. And Jesus doesn't want us to have that same fear. He wants us to know that his blood is more than enough to deal with our guilt and our shame. Not only are we washed, but we are also welcomed. Sometimes we remember the first one, but we can find it hard to believe the second. And if it sounds too good to be true, it's because it is true. It wouldn't be the gospel unless it sounded like that. There's a a line from uh, the the hymn, um, Christ the Sure and Steady Anchor, I mentioned earlier, that that similarly says to us, um, hopeless somehow, oh my soul now, cast your eyes to Calvary. This, my ballast of assurance, see his love forever proved. The cross is where we go to for our ballast of assurance. When we are doubting his love, it is forever proved there. The theologian John Owen um, wrote this, the greatest sorrow and burden you can lay on the father, the greatest unkindness you can do to him is to not believe that he loves you. So friends, let's believe that he loves us. But how can Joseph show such grace, such compassion, not just to anyone, but to these people who did so much wrong? He's able to look through the suffering and the evil because he entrusts it to a God of providence who can turn evil for good. He says, verse 19, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then, 
don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. It's an astonishing answer, isn't it? What they intended for harm, for for evil, God intended in the same event for good. We've seen this running through several times our series. Um, So let me just draw out a few highlights in the way Joseph puts puts it here that I think is helpful for us as we try and grasp this big truth. Firstly, he calls evil evil. He doesn't undermine the seriousness of what they did. Sometimes bad things happen and we can rewrite history after it to try and process to move on, make it a little bit less serious than it was. In doing so, to try and accept it or to try and accept um, that the Lord has brought good out of it or been working in it, we can rewrite the boundaries of right and wrong. And if we do not call evil evil, we play havoc with our emotions and we end up finding it hard to, to grieve something that should be grieved. Whatever good may come from it, may be used, uh, it may be used for, it doesn't change the evil that was done. God's providence never calls evil good, but it does turn evil for good. Um, William Cooper, who I mentioned earlier, had this lovely line, the bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Sort of seed and then the unfolding. The bitter taste, it is bitter, but the flower is sweet. He calls evil, evil. That's the first thing that Joseph says. He also says that they planned it and they are to be held accountable. They hatched a plan. They had intentions for doing evil. And so they are responsible and need to be held accountable. But who to? Well, the first thing Joseph says Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? He is not in the place to judge their actions. Leaving justice in the hands of God can be a really hard thing, can't it? But it is a good thing because no divine court will overlook evil. In the end, only divine justice will prevent all evil from flourishing. That doesn't mean there's not a place for a legal system, for prisons, for consequences of serious sin in society. But at a personal level, whilst God's providence never takes away people's responsibility for evil, we must ultimately leave it in the Lord's hands. They planned it and they are to be held accountable ultimately to God. But also... God planned it. And here is the thing that plays tricks with our minds. The God who created everything in Genesis 1 is sovereign over all of his creation. Uh, Psalm 139 verse 16 says, All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. That means that Joseph's pit experience, his slavery as much as his exaltation, they were all in God's book. Creation is not some out-of-control Frankenstein's monster. Rather, God is in control of all of it, from world history to the natural world to the details of 
personal lives. God's providence says that whilst the brothers planned it and are responsible for it, God also planned it. We trace the evil back to the brothers, but in the same event, we can trace the good back to our heavenly and sovereign Father. God planned it, but God planned it for good. Do you see verse 20? God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. I'd love to be able to explain this uh, a lot more for you. Um, But these are the ways and the mind of God himself. People have written books that might be helpful answers. If you want to think more, come and ask me. I can point you to a, a helpful book. But essentially, there is a mystery here, isn't there? There are two actors behind this same event, the brothers and the sovereign Lord, but two actors with two intentions. And these actors are not playing on a level playing field. What this is not is some sort of chess game where God is constantly responding to a play that he wasn't expecting, just making the best out of a bad job. What this is not is uh, the chase in Wallace and Gromit's The Wrong Trousers. Have you seen that? There's a great train, train chase at the end where the penguin is, is going down one set of tracks and Wallace and Gromit are on another train. And Gromit, the, there's no train tracks left, so he has to pick up the tracks and he's literally laying them in front and laying the tracks down. This is not that. Things have not gone out of control and God is not just trying to kind of make the best of a bad job. No, the tracks are laid and it includes this event. But in God's providence, what was intended for evil by them was intended for good by him. And so Joseph can answer them. He can be kind to them. He can forgive them and reassure them. And he's able to die in Egypt knowing all that's going to happen in 400 years' time, trusting in that same providence that God will bring good out of the evil that they are about to go through. Well, how does knowing that God turns evil for good help us in the dark that is before the dawn? Well, if God can turn evil to good in the life of Joseph, then he can do it for Israel, and he can do it for us as well. There are just a few ways that this might encourage us as we come to a close. Knowing that God can turn evil for good in our lives means, firstly, there is purpose in the darkness before the dawn. Even in those darkest of events where neither rhyme nor reason explains what God might be doing, the fact that he can turn evil for good shows us what we're going through is not going to be wasted. We might not know what the purpose is, but that doesn't mean that purpose is not there. But more than that, it isn't just purpose, but good purpose. Indeed, if you think about the greatest good that has ever been done, it was something evil that God turned to good. In Acts, they talk about the cross, and uh, Peter or Paul, one of them in a sermon, says, you killed the author of life. Humanity did an evil deed, and yet the death of Christ on the cross was turned into a gift of everlasting life and forgiveness for us the greatest good we could ever imagine. There is purpose in the dark. It is good purpose. Third encouragement, Jesus walked this path before we did. We are not alone. We have a savior, a shepherd, a friend and brother who has endured 
the worst and yet seen the very best being brought out of it. Jesus knows what it is like and he is with us from now until glory. And fourthly, the path of suffering, the path of a long spiritual polar night is not simply a path to more suffering. For Jesus, it was the route to glory and is the same for us. Gareth read Psalm 30 earlier, and it has this verse, weeping is only for a night, but in the morning we rejoice. There is a time for weeping. It's in the night. You can weep while it is nighttime, but the morning will come, and then we will rejoice. God's providence never says, do not weep in the night, but it also says, don't lose hope in the joy to come when the lights are turned back on. God's providence turns evil for good. Well, as we experience that sense of dark before the dawn in our own lives, in small ways, in big waves, uh, as we get to the end of Genesis, God has given us something to cling on to. The providence of God that turns the grave to a place of hope and shows that evil can be turned for good. Uh, When William Cooper's life was ended, it seemed like a, a, a polar night that had no dawn. And his words made sense. God moves in a mysterious way. God's providence felt like a frown, not like a smile. And maybe it feels like that for you this morning. But William Cooper's life ended not in despair, but in hope that that dark was just before the dawn. Because the hymn goes on and shows his trust in the providence of God. He knows, even though he finds it hard to believe, he says this, blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. He'll he'll look at everything and he won't understand what's happening. God is his own interpreter and he will make it plain. He entrusts it to the Lord. He says, I don't know how, but I know that you are faithful and that you are good and one day I will see that. A few years earlier, he wrote another hymn which summed up where he would go when he died. I'll just close with these words. The hymn, There is a Fountain Filled with Blood, is where William Cooper ends up. He says, When this poor lisping, stammering tongue lies silent in the grave, then in a nobler, sweeter song, I'll sing thy power to save. For William Cooper, uh, the dawn eventually came when he went to be with his saviour. And let's take a moment now just to pray that the Lord would strengthen us and fill us with the same hope and faith that he had in God's providence.